This past week I did what many of you have probably already done in person or, or on the phone or perhaps only in a prayer towards heaven. I, I contacted my mom and I, I tried to express in bumbling words how much I loved her and how grateful I feel for all that she has, has done for me. She responded in her typical fashion. She got embarrassed. She tried to cut off the conversation and switch the subject as soon as she possibly could. She went on to say that, that um, just seeing her children become who they're becoming is more than thanks enough for her. We didn't need to do anything more, she said, but like most of my siblings, I think I sent her a card anyway and felt as I sent it off, it was just too insufficient. How do you do it? How do you, how do you in any just or adequate way communicate enough gratitude to the person who has given you life and, and kept on giving life in many cases in so uh, many rich ways. I think in my own experience of the endless nights that my mom spent um, walking with me and rocking me as a colicky baby. Uh, and I don't know how she went month after month like that. Uh, I, I think of, of how she cared for me as I caught just about every other childhood disease you could get, short of the swine flu, and, and just was there for me, you know, mopping up when I messed on the floor. You know, I don't want to go into it. It's ugly. It's, it's not something guys should have to talk about. I, it, but I, I remember the many, many times when, when she met me with this combination of truth and grace. I think back to one of these moments when um, I was in middle school and, uh, and I had been out with my friends and I managed to peg a perfectly formed snowball right through the window, open window, of an automobile, and it turned out to be an unmarked police car. <laughs> and how mad she was, justifiably, <laughs> and yet how surprisingly gracious and forgiving she ultimately was. I remember the comfort that I found in her when two successive girlfriends dumped me in short order for better and brighter guys. And uh, I think of the countless meals she made, the practical skills that she taught me along the way, the social graces, at least a few of them, that she managed to impart in me that, so that one day some girl might finally stay with me. And I want to say thank you, Amy, for staying with me <laughs> and for now being the wonderful mother of our, of our children. My mom gave me a lot of gifts, maybe your mom gave you a lot of gifts. But I think that the greatest one of all, the greatest um, gift that my mom made to me of all was helping me discover who Jesus is. Uh, that's the one that's been the gift that's kept on giving in the most significant way in, in my own journey. Uh, she helped me to discover who Jesus is and who Jesus calls me to be, who I am before Jesus. As many of you know, I, I did not make a personal commitment to, to, to Christ to, to be a follower of Jesus until later on in my life. But, but everything my mom did during those earlier years 
prepared the ground for it, I think. She took me to church even when I didn't want to go to church. And as hard as it is to imagine, even for those of you sitting here today, there are people that don't like going to church. Right? Some of you are here today because your mom took you here today. All right, mom, I'll go. She did the same with me. And the same with me. She enrolled me in vacation Bible school as a kid. She she worked with me to memorize scripture verses uh, as a part of that Bible school experience. And I saw that the Bible to her was, was something important. I would see her reading the Bible at home, and she'd have a pencil, and she'd be writing notes in the margin. And I'd see her going off during the week to this neighborhood Bible study, and I didn't really understand why she'd want to do that. But she pictured for me at an early age that rhythm that now is, is my rhythm, too. Um, she read to me from the Narnia Chronicles. I think she read all the way through. I had tonsillitis. I was miserable, and the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe spilled from her lips uh, for one week of my life. And, and I found myself mesmerized by the figure of this great lion, Aslan, which is C.S. Lewis's figure for the person of Jesus. And I found myself at a young age just drawn towards that being and wishing I could meet him. I think, as I look back now, that as shaky as my mom would say, her own faith has been, her own character has been in many ways. God used my mother to play, to plow these furrows uh, in the soil of my life, in the soil of my soul. And, and it was because there were those furrows that when the seeds were dropped later on and watered and nourished in a different way, that finally the seed of faith really started to to bear fruit. I guess I want to suggest to you this morning that uh, uh, amongst the other things that we recognize mothers for, grandmothers, female mentors, mentors of every kind for, that one of the greatest, greatest gifts that that any mother, grandmother down the list can, can give to another person, a child at any age, is a knowledge of who Jesus really is. And at least some glimpse of who we really are as we live into his calling. There, there's a lot of confusion about this these days. I'm, a lot of confusion about who Jesus is. A lot of confusion about what it means to actually uh, be a follower of Jesus. And it's not a new phenomenon because there was confusion about this apparently even in Christ's own time. In Luke chapter 9, one of the passages that we've read this past week in this great swath of scripture we're looking at, we read that once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. In other words, there are a bunch of theories about you out there, Jesus, they were saying. Some say you're a spiritual guru like John the Baptist. You know, you stir people up. You get them thinking about their inner life. You make them look at their soul. And that's good. Some, some say you're a political activist like 
Elijah, Jesus, you're somebody good because you speak the truth to power. You unveil corruption. You, you mobilize energies towards good purposes. That's good. You should be proud that they, they see you like John the Baptist or like Elijah. And others say that you're a great ethical teacher, Jesus, sort of like the prophets of long ago. You're somebody good because you provide these principles by which people can lead a more just or loving life. Most people still feel this way about Jesus, I think. Most people still appreciate his spiritual insight. They value his political courage, his social ethics. Most people consider Jesus very good. Even irreligious people, even people from other religions, look at the person of Jesus. They may not like church. They look at the person of Jesus and they say, wow, he, he was good. But what I want to impress upon us this morning and, and what somehow my mom was able to impress upon me, or at least start the process, is that this is far short of who Jesus really is. As Greg Ogden reminded some of us recently, Jesus was, was no ordinary man. Jesus wasn't even just an extraordinary man. Jesus did not seek to be admired as good. In fact, at one point when somebody calls him good, he makes a point of saying no one's good but God. Telling us something about himself. Jesus did not seek to be admired as good. He sought to be followed, surrendered to, responded to as God. And so after hearing his disciples describing all of these popular theories, these ones still out there today about his identity, Jesus put the question to them bluntly. What about you? What about you? Who do you say that I am? Because if you confess me as just good, it's going to lead to a one set of outcomes. If you confess me as God, it's going to change your life. And through your life, the world. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You're the Christ. You are the Christ of God. It was a religious title that was loaded, <laughs> this phrase, the Christ. It was loaded with all kinds of meaning that had been just packed in century upon century through God's dealings with the Hebrew people. And so in using the title, the Christ, Peter was saying a lot. Simon Peter was saying, I believe you are the one. You are the long-awaited one promised by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are the anointed king, Jesus. You're the king of kings. There is no one like you. You, Jesus, are the Messiah we've been waiting for. You're the suffering servant that the prophet Isaiah said 
would bear the iniquity of us all and by your stripes we would be healed. You are the Holy One of Israel, Jesus. You are the hope of all nations. You're the Savior of humanity. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, That's right, Peter. Blessed are you, Simon Peter, that God has revealed this to you. Stand firm on this conviction about who I am and who you're called to be before me. And I promise you that the very strength of death, hell, Hades itself will never be able to overcome you. If you read the gospel text assigned for today's portion of our study of the Bible storyline, or, or if you go ahead and read them today or in the days to come, then you will know how Jesus then goes on to expand on this statement and confirm this confession of Peter in very dramatic ways. And I just want to unpack a little bit of that part of the storyline. It's not going to do justice to all of it, but just to give us a flavor of how the gospel story flows from here. Jesus then takes Peter, and he, and he, and he takes James and John up on a mountainside, and he gives them a glimpse of his full glory. In other words, for one a brief literally shining moment, they no longer see the carpenter dressed in, you know, first century Palestinian drab. They suddenly see him illuminated with all of his glory. They see a being of absolutely pure, radiant light, energy, beauty, majesty, glory. And they know who he is. The name that God had given to Moses to call him by was the word Yahweh. It literally meant I am who I am. And so Jesus goes on in a variety of famous statements and these corroborating signs that would demonstrate, illustrate vividly, graphically, in technicolor the truth of those statements he was making about himself. Jesus brashly declares that he is the I am who I am. He is the great God himself come to earth to offer humanity everything that it needs. Bread, light, a way in, Shepherding care, the power of resurrection, a way in life, the truth to find that way, the vine that fills our, 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 our lives with the power to bear fruit before Abraham was, says Jesus. I am. And then Jesus gives his disciples further windows into his power. He, he shows them his immense capacity to overcome the powers that disfigure human beings. And he casts these, these demons, these influences out of numerous people's lives. This is just one of the stories. And he gives them a further glimpse into his ability to overcome even the scourge of the fearsome 
power of death by raising a man from the dead. But Jesus also made it clear that the way to ultimate life paradoxically involved a certain kind of dying. A certain kind of dying. You know, I have a friend. He's a member of this church. And yesterday, in his 40s, he suddenly has a seizure. And they discover that he has a tumor growing on his brain. And I'm with him last night, late last night at the hospital. And he says, you know, it's the weirdest thing. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. But I can't help but think of the words of Jesus when he said, why do you worry? Consider the lilies of the field, the flowers of the field, the birds of the air, and how God cares for them. Are you not more precious to him than they? Who of you can add a single hour to your life by worrying? Trust me. And so I'm going to try and trust, he said. Jesus said that the way to ultimate life would be a process of dying to our false securities. He said that our version of wealth and security, however we define it, however we may cling to it, has to be crucified so that a new and greater kind of treasure can be formed in us, a a dependence on God, a consideration for others. In fact, as Jesus was describing this, a rich man who had been following him for quite a while finally got this message that Jesus was asking him to let go of the things that he had been holding on to as his primary securities, and it was too tough for him to do it. And he gave up the journey with Jesus at this point. He just could not see, as it, it's hard for us to see sometimes, that the kingdom of God is not accessible to those who put their hope in their performance or their possessions primarily. You can't get in on the life of God. Even now, in this life, you, we can't get in on it. If, if, if where our real comfort and hope is, is this huge backpack of stuff we're carrying. It's why economic downturns and brain tumors are not always curses, but can become bridges. Jesus said that the way to the kingdom of God is to have the humility and the trust of a little child in the love of of the heavenly father. And this was hard for his disciples to take in. It was hard for the crowds. It was even hard for his disciples to take this stuff in. It's maybe hard for you to take it in. I struggle to take it in. But Jesus patiently taught 
the people. As we read about his stories in the Gospels, we see him patiently teaching them that the true pathway to greatness in life is counterintuitive. It lies not in getting, but in giving. It lies not in, in trying to have everybody serve us. It lies in being a servant. And then to prove Lest anybody think he was calling for these sacrifices because he's kind of a Scrooge God. Jesus goes on in the Gospels to tell us, to prove to us that it's divine love that's on our side, that's working for us, that's calling us into this life with him. And he declares that he himself would be the one to make the greatest sacrifice. Three separate times in these passages of the scriptures, he tells his disciples that his plan is to go to Jerusalem, not to take on a worldly crown, not to sit in the hot tub of worldly comfort, not to be adored as a celebrity by the crowd, but to go to a cross to suffer and to die, to pay the ultimate price for human sin, to be the ransom that sets people free. The Son of Man must suffer many things and die and then be raised again in three days, Jesus said. And so, at the end of the storyline for this week, we see Jesus outside Jerusalem moving towards the cross. We see him sending his disciples to fetch a a donkey colt as the mode of transportation he chooses to go into the city. And it's incredibly symbolic because in, in ancient days, conquering kings came on noble stallions, but kings who came to bring peace rode on donkey colts. And so Jesus came, and we watch him riding triumphantly through the gates of the ancient city of David as throngs of people are laying down their coats and and strewing palm branches beneath his feet so they won't get dirty and they're shouting hosannas at the arrival of the long-awaited Savior, the guy that's going to be their bailout plan, the great hope that they have for greater health, wealth, and prosperity. But they do not understand yet what salvation will require of him and of us. And ironically, it's the most religious people that are furthest from the truth. And they decide that they want the God that Jesus represents, dead and buried. And it is there as Holy Week rushes towards its climax on a lonely hill outside of Jerusalem that this particular portion of the storyline fades to black until we rejoin it next week. I said at the start that the greatest gifts a mother of a person or anybody else who cares about another can give to that person is the knowledge of who Jesus really is and of who they really are and are called to be before him. There is a profound need for a renewed discovery of and dedication to passing on of that vision in our time, I think. As Josh McDowell suggested recently to us and every day confirms for us 
We face some significant crises in our world today. We face a profound complex of problems in our world today. And millions have come to believe that our most pressing issues are economic, political, and military ones. Isn't that right? That's what's being talked about across the cable stations and on the Twitter blasts. It's all of these problems. But it is, in fact, says Jesus, the collapse of our spiritual center that most imperils our lives as individuals, as families, and as a nation. Without a revival in the soul of humanity, renewal at every other level will be unimaginably hard. Without a fundamental alteration in the way people come at life, see value in life, it's going to be almost impossible to dig our way out of these increasingly complex problems that face us in this shrinking and conflict-laden world. Without a fundamental alteration at the level of the human soul, any changes that are are established will be painfully short-lived, I suspect. And so now, I think, more than ever before, we need you, Mom. We need you, grandmother. We, we need you, aunts and sisters and friends. We need every men, mentor of every age and every gender to teach kids, to, to instruct others and own for themselves the simple truths that Jesus taught, the simple vision that Jesus taught. And so at the risk of sounding simplistic, let me close us out today by just trying to, to remind all of us of just a few of the particular things that Jesus teaches us and models for us. The truth, says Jesus, is that we do not own this earth. No matter what the mortgage deed says, private property for a season, good thing, good thing. But the mentality that we own it all, it's ours to use as we see fit, is not what Jesus teaches. Jesus teaches that we are simply stewards for a season in the master's great vineyard. Jesus teaches us the truth that responsibilities are more significant to God than rights. In fact, if you study the scriptures, and, most, and many people, this, is, this will be new, the Bible rarely speaks about rights. Almost always about a sense of responsibility. And so Jesus would say to us that we do not have a right to sex. We do not have a right to comfort. We do not have a right to health. We do not have a right to a certain lifespan, to breathe the air of this life for even 10 minutes in a universe dominated by by darkness and vacuum and death and nothing, to breathe for even 10 minutes this glorious life we have is an amazing grace. The truth, according to Jesus, is that service and sacrifice for the sake of others isn't a charity tax strategy. 
That service and sacrifice for the sake of others isn't a loathsome burden. It, It isn't an emergency measure in a time of national despair. It is a privileged opportunity to do what God does gladly and every day as he gives himself away in love. The truth, says Jesus, is that the least and the last and the lost people in your school, in our cities, at our workplace, in our prisons, in our wombs, in our freezers, in the enemy's camps, the least, the last, and the lost matter to him. They matter to him. That's why Jesus spent time with Prostitutes, lepers, Gentiles, Roman centurions, Samaritans. The Hebrew people couldn't get him. Couldn't understand it. And the truth, Jesus says, is that those who throw stones need to think it carefully. Those who throw stones, who throw bombs, who throw barbs to judge others need to think carefully because one day they will stand before the Supreme Court himself. The truth is that the greatest wealth, says Jesus, is wisdom and love. That's it. That's the greatest. That's the only thing that lasts. It's riches. Wisdom and love. And to spend our lives primarily chasing after something less than that, Foolish. Foolish. The truth, says Jesus, is that not all roads lead to the same place. Not all spiritual roads, not all relational roads, not all roads lead to the same place. And just because the majority of people happen to be traveling a bad road doesn't make it a good road. It doesn't get to be a better road because more people are traveling the road unless... You like being a lemming. The truth, says Jesus, is that God is far more interested in making us holy than in making us happy. That's why he allows suffering. Because he knows that holiness is refined by fire. And happiness, it's good. He's nothing against it in God's eyes. He talks a lot about it in places, but it's not his primary concern. It's the shaping of a heart and mind like his. The truth is, says Jesus, that no harvest comes, no race is won without hard work, without deliberate preparation. Your marriage, in your character, in your family life, in your golf game, hard work is required. The truth, says Jesus, is that the Ten Commandments are still commandments. His Sermon on the Mount is all about that. And it is very important that we understand that our welfare depends upon us not just posting them on our walls, but praying them into our souls and into our practice. And finally, isn't that a great word, finally? The truth is that all of us owe a lot 
to a mother named Mary. Because when it was terribly inconvenient, very difficult, and she had this, um, this pregnancy from who knows where, her response was this, let it be to me according to thy word, God. And because of her surrender, because of that, her body became the vessel through which the great I am himself came to this earth in the person of Jesus to give us the gift of these truths and the truth that is himself. So let's give thanks today. Let's give thanks, shall we, that there are other mothers, <laughs> like Mary. There are other mothers, many within the sound of my voice today, who are committed to keep passing the gifts on. Please pray with me. And now, God, we pray that, that some seed of your way in life, your truth and grace, will sink so deeply into our souls today that it will bear fruit, fruit that lasts fruit that blesses other, fruit that fulfills our purpose, fruit that brings glory to your name.